listeners and welcome to the MK News Podcast recorded here in Chejador on Wednesday the 29th of May 2019 and I'm down here for the Teju Forum and I'm having a talk today with Professor Peter Hayes, an honorary professor at the Centre for International Security Studies at Sydney University in Australia and director of the Nautilus Institute in Berkeley, California. But you are originally from the town or the town city where I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Is that right? Well, I'm a dairy farm boy from Gippsland, which is you know about 200 miles from Melbourne, but like you went to the University of Melbourne, yep. for sort of the institution of higher yearning, and went on from there. Uh, where in Gippsland are you from? Uh, originally Labatouche, and then my parents moved to the Mornington Peninsula. Ah. They were ag scientists as well as farmers. They were that World War II generation who could do anything. Yes. After fighting in World War II, they came back, they went on the land, uh, they did their studies at the uni, and, and they went on to do amazing things. So. Uh, my Dutch immigrant parents were uh, very fond of the uh, the landscape of Gippsland, so we spent many uh, weekends driving through there and had a couple of holidays in the area. There. Yep, yep, beautiful area. Uh, from your introduction on the website of the Nautilus, which our listeners can find at n-a-u-t-i-l-u-s, nautilus.org, uh, you work at the nexus of security, environment, and energy policy problems, and that is quite uh, quite a nexus to be working at. Uh, especially in relation to uh, the Korean Peninsula. I mean, gosh, I've, I've lived in Seoul long enough to know that the air quality there is not getting any better. We talk every year about um, the fine dust problems more and more. And as you'll well know, um, nature doesn't respect borders. And so the demilitarized zone exists to keep people out, but uh, water, uh, air, birds, um, and you know, biodiversity, they don't respect those borders, and so they, they move where they will. So could you tell us a little bit about how does that nexus of, of uh, energy, security, policy, and environment all work together? Well, in the very big picture, there are roughly 300 truly global problems that have been identified and documented as, in some objective fashion, reaching the level of globality that you could actually tr- truly call them shared, you know, human problems at a global level. Of those, we work on three. So only a small fraction of the true complexity. But the reason we work at that specific nexus of energy, environment, and security in this region is because it enables us in a very specific way to examine what kind of methods, what kind of techniques, given the uncertainty that is posed by that level of complexity, you can never really understand what's going on at a, at a sort of purely intellectual level, um, we can actually figure out ways of approaching that complexity to solve problems that simultaneously take into account the common causes and simultaneously try and exploit the shared solutions with the stakeholders that have a vested interest in either making the problem happen in the first place or in solving it in the second place. They're not necessarily the same players. So you know that means we always are working on the nuclear weapons, nuclear fuel cycle, energy security, and ecological dimensions of a specific issue. We don't work on them one at a time, separately or sequentially. We are seeking ways to approach them simultaneously uh, at the same time, and then trying to figure out which tools work, which strategies work, in a way that brings about a real uh, defined, measurable impact outcome over a three- to five-year period. Now, I first heard of you and of the Nautilus Institute back in uh, in early or mid-2000 when uh, I was living in Melbourne and uh, I was working, but I heard that you were going to speak about uh, 
development aid that you had done in uh, in North Korea. So I sent my wife along to uh, to listen to your talk at Monash University and to record it. And I listened to the cassette tape a few times after that. To, uh, and it was, to me, quite inspiring that the work that you were doing at that time uh, involved um, going to rural villages of North Korea and setting up uh, wind turbines and also helping to uh, clearly separate the in-water from the out-water so that uh, the water supply that people were using to drink and wash wouldn't be mixing with the uh, the water that was uh, coming from the sewage systems and uh, that that was a, a severe problem in North Korea. And here we are 19 years later, and I meet people from, for example, the Swiss Development Corporation or other kinds of organizations, and they're still doing the exact same work 19 years later. So those same problems that were problems then, when you were doing the work there, are still problems now. Do you find that at all disheartening? I think it's pathetic, frankly, that, that so many years later we're still dealing with the same issues in North Korea. These are actually not big issues. North Korea itself is not a big issue. It's a big issue for Koreans, I understand that. But looking at it in the big picture of geopolitics, geoeconomics and geoecology, North Korea is a tiny state and these problems could be solved with goodwill and good strategy almost overnight if people really wanted to solve it. Uh, the fact is that Korea is divided for a reason, which is that great powers found it convenient and in their interest to divide it and keep it divided. And whilst it's divided and at conflict of the way it is, those problems will continue. So it really comes down to why haven't the great powers set about along with Koreans to solve this problem? And if they had, you know, there wouldn't be dirty water, people with dysentery, and then a need for all sorts of desperate machinations to get food aid in and medicine in and so forth that, that goes on today. You wouldn't have those problems in North Korea at all. It's not just, of course, the the dirty water where you had drinking water commingling with sewage in the big cities where the sewage plants had broken down because they didn't have electric power, they didn't have the various chemicals needed to treat sewage, or in the villages where you had people uh, so desperate that you know they would drink water that was badly polluted. It, 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 it cuts across so many different aspects of life in North Korea. No medicine. I mean, just really, literally no medicine. So when we would go to North Korea, what I would take in my bag is a whole bag of baby suppository Tylenol because I knew that the most desperate thing for young Korean parents was to have a baby dying of a very high temperature. And mm -hmm. if you gave them baby Tylenol, it could bring their temperature down and save their lives. You had a friend for life. And we would give out kilos of this stuff as we went around North Korea explaining how it's used. Yeah. Uh, in the clinics that we're working, we would always leave our first aid kit of our technical uh, mission behind, and we gave them more medicine in, in, the, in those villages than they'd seen ever. And uh, it, it, it's just incredibly sad that that human cost, which is so needless, continues. And it makes me actually quite angry when I think about it. Now, you've, you've visited North Korea, I think, seven times in total. Uh, when was the last visit? I haven't been to North Korea since, oh, early 2000s because that's when our, uh, 2008, that was when our uh, building installation project ended in Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, we, of course, built the wind turbine system. We built the water lifting windmills. Uh, and I'd been in and out of North Korea on nuclear weapons issues for many years before that, going back to 1991. But in, in, in the early 2000s, as the Bush administration came into power, 
And as Kim Jong-un began to ramp up the nuclear weapons effort, it became very clear to us and our counterparts in North Korea that there was really no point in spending immense amounts of effort and energy and people taking a lot of risk on both sides, the Americans involved, and I say this as an American Australian, I have both nationalities now, uh, as well as the North Koreans, uh, to create these bridges if no one was going to be walking over them from either side. And for a long time, we had thousands of North Koreans going to Unhari village to look at the wind power system that the Americans had built as an example of what could be done. And that's why we built the damn thing. It wasn't so much to produce you know, electric power, because it was probably the most expensive electric power from wind turbines in human history, mm. that particular turbine. We knew it wasn't going to be replicated en masse across North Korea. Ah. It was built to demonstrate a, you know, in a very simple and direct way that if you did what you said you were going to do with Koreans, with North Koreans, but this is generally the case with Koreans, uh, they would do what they said they were going to do in response. It was a really simple. You can do business with North Koreans if you do what you say you're going to do. That simple. And we succeeded. And the fact is, our tiny wind turbine did produce electric power from 1998 to, I think it was about 2006, um, where, and we spent maybe quarter of a million dollars building it. Wow. The United States and its partners built, uh, spent $5 billion on two reactors that are two large holes in the ground, never produced one kilowatt hour of electric, electricity and made 22 million odd North Koreans extremely angry. So, you know, I think we did a lot better job than the governments involved. So, thinking about the uh, really on-the-ground uh, results that your work had and, and also just... Um, you mentioned that the medicine that you brought in, the baby Tylenol. Why did you stop going there? Well, because you only go to North Korea if you have a very good reason. And uh, I, in a very simple, direct fashion, have not had a very good reason to go there since that period. It's time, actually, to go back because I think as things start to come to a head, uh, there is a real need to work with North Koreans in certain issues, again, to do with energy and, again, to do with how to deal with the nuclear weapons threat issue in a creative and systematic way uh, that probably does require us to go back to Pyongyang, or if not in Pyongyang, uh, engage North Koreans outside uh, in a collaborative, uh, cooperative way. And, in fact, we uh, are planning a meeting uh, later this year in Beijing on regional energy security issues. Uh, which is intended to define an approach to energy assistance for North Korea that, unlike the six-party talks, wouldn't actually be about North Korea. The mistake in the energy working group, and we were advising a number of the delegations, not just the American delegation, in the six-party talks on how to approach energy in that context, was that they always viewed energy as a bribed by North Korean better behavior at the margin, sort of incremental change. And that was doomed to failure. That was a form of sort of mutual extortion and bribery that didn't work very well, to put it mildly. We argue now that what we need are regional approaches where everyone benefits at the same time from a project and builds in interdependence between the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, the South Koreans, so that the North Koreans can't, can't screw around with South Korea without simultaneously taking on the Chinese or the Russians. And South Korea can't lean on North Korea without simultaneously taking on the Chinese or the Russians. That's the advantage of interdependence. 
and that it's that kind of project that is what's really needed at the moment with North Korea. They'll have to rebuild their energy system bottom up. There'll have to be huge injections of technical expertise, capital, infrastructure, effort from all the countries to do that. But it's that process has to be led primarily by the North Koreans. But up front, I think we can help them understand the options that uh, will work for everyone. And we share that information to create common knowledge with our partners in South Korea, uh, in China, in Mongolia, in Russia, Far East, in Japan, and of course the United States. And I'm talking here governmental level, not yep. just in the non-governmental and scholarly world. Uh, that's, the, that's the goal here. So we, will, we are still involved in North Korea, but until very recently, we just did not feel that we had any actual reason to go. And to go to North Korea as a non-governmental organization means you have to make commitments that are absolute. In other words, if you propose to do something and your counterparts in North Korea say, yes, you absolutely have to do what you proposed. You have to be ready, you have to be funded, you have to have all the ticks in the boxes are ready to go because if you then say no to them they've gone out on a limb in Pyongyang to get the permissions and you just sawed that limb off and they're plummeting to the ground and that means you know, severe punishment persecution being sent to the provinces overseas Is education, you don't do that to North Koreans if you want to have long run relations of trust is it not feasible to go to North Korea uh, as an NGO for initial uh, study tours or fact-finding missions to decide on what course of action? Not, not for the kind of work we do. We, no. you know, the North Koreans know perfectly well that we work intimately and closely with governments uh, and players that are not your standard development NGOs. And um, they know that because we tell them who we're talking to. Yeah. There are no secrets, so there have to be no lies. That also means, for example, in the Unhari project, uh, for years we collected data from the electric power system from which we could conclude that there were actually more than one grid operating in North Korea. The grid had broken down to the point it was balkanized, so that you had two grids operating at different frequencies, one at about 50 hertz, one at the nominal 60 hertz. In well, the same place at the same time? No, in well, in the same country at the same time. Right, but in different provinces? or Well, different parts of the grid were being operated in different ways to basically extend the power that was available, if you like, by degrading in some areas but oh. not in others. So if they made a judgment, you didn't need electric motors that were designed for 60 hertz working in a particular area. They would slow down the generators and send out 50 hertz power basically for... Uh, reactive loads, if you like, light bulbs, that if they dim, who cares? Mm. Not motors, they'll burn out if you send them 50 hertz. So that's what was going on. They were in such desperate straits that they were actually running multiple grids. Now, you know, that single fact that, that came from that was, you know, they knew, we knew, because we were collecting the data, it was actually collected off the grid in a digital readout. Huh. Um, that's the kind of data you can't collect from satellites. You've got to be on the ground. Yep. You've got to have cooperation with North Koreans to get that. And that in turn enabled us to uh, advise the, the powers that be uh, in the United States at the time and elsewhere um, that there was no way to connect the reactors to the North Korean grid and would not be. The only way you could build the Kato reactors and have them operate would have been on a tie line from Russia to South Korea with two AC lines run from South Korea to Shimpo 
a bag to export the power of South Korea. It was physically not possible to connect the grids. Hang on, I should, I should interrupt there to give a bit of background information to our listeners. So um, the, the Kido project that you're talking about is the Korea Energy Development Organ- Korea Peninsula Energy Development Organization. Thank you, right, with a silent P in Kido. Right. Uh, and that was uh, a result of the agreed framework of 1994, which was right. the, the promise by America, South Korea, Japan, and other stakeholders, the Europeans, EU, right. uh, EU to, to uh, produce two light water reactors in North Korea, uh, to take off the um, the en- nuclear energy reactors that had the um, capacity to build plutonium or other things for uh, for nuclear weapons. Uh, now, as you point out earlier, those uh, reactors never got finished, never produced a single kilowatt of electricity. You're now saying that um, that even if they had been finished, even if they had produced electricity, it would have been impossible to hook them up to the North Korean grid. And tell me again why that is? The reason is there's a certain ratio between the size of the grid, total installed capacity in a grid, and the size of a reactor in a given country or, or utility. Roughly for 10 gigawatts, which they have five coal, five hydro in North Korea, you've really got at any point in time a maximum of five gigawatts installed. At that time, they were actually running at 0.5 to 1 gigawatt because so much of it was down. The transmission lines were broken. Generators weren't working. They didn't have coal at the time because of floods in the mines, etc. And there's no way you can run 2 gigawatts of reactor on a grid that's actually operating at 1 to 2 gigawatts. You need rough, It depends on the density of the interconnection, but for a 1 gigawatt reactor, you probably need around 8 to 10 gigawatt of installed capacity. Uh, and the reason for that is that if the reactor goes down quickly, then the whole grid will go down because such a large amount of the generation is lost. And more importantly, in some respects, if the grid itself is unstable, that will cause, say, fluctuation of about 0.1 hertz uh, in the power stability. That will cause the reactor to automatically shut down because if you don't shut it down and suddenly there's a loss transmission your reactor is producing electricity like crazy with nowhere to send it mm. so you have to crash shut it down and if you do that it turns out that's one of the ways you can create a loss of coolant accident that leads to a fukushima style problem right so you can't connect physically your technology won't allow you to connect a pressurized water reactor or a boiling water reactor of that size to an unstable grid we measured the grid and it was fluctuating. It was actually incredible. People didn't believe it, but it was true. Plus or minus 2 hertz, around 50 or around 60 hertz. Now, that level of fluctuation means that a lot of electronics, electronic, electrical equipment simply won't work. The North Koreans actually knew that this was the case from the get-go. They actually told us the reason for this uh, was that the Electro Electrical Research Institute that they have in their utility had told Kim Jong-un, uh, Kim Jong-il, excuse me, that they should not accept a reactor bigger than 400 megawatts in the size of their their grid. So they knew full well in 1994 when they were negotiating the agreed framework that they were getting reactors that were too big. From their perspective, what they hoped was that the project would build such momentum it would force South Korea, Japan, the United States, and the other parties to reconstruct their grid. The whole grid. Right. In order what to does that actually it. mean? Well, it means you have to actually refurbish the generators that would be damaged during the floods, the hydroelectric system. 
you'd have to build new or refurbish the coal-fired power plants. You'd have to rebuild the, the transmission lines, many of which were ancient. So rewire the country. Rewire the country. Now, our calculations were that this was just the transmission distribution system at that time was roughly over about a 10-year period, about a $40 billion project. That's what it would cost, not even taking account of the generation side of it. Now, that would be $4 billion a year. The Shimpo project was about $4 billion in total at that point. So Shimpo like project being the, 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 the keto two light water reactors. Right. Okay. So, so their strategy was to use this as leverage to expand to an increased infrastructure assistance yep. program. For our part on the United States side and at Cato, we also knew full well that this would never work. Uh, Cato did extensive electrical engineering studies and, in fact, were in communication with the North Koreans about it. Uh, and KEPCO at the time had done some studies because we were involved with them. Yep, that's the South Korean uh, yeah. Electricity Producing Corporation, right. and the state government. Uh, yeah. Right, and, and Kerry, the Korea Electrotechnology Research Institute, which is in Busan, had done inter-tie connections between the Russian Far East and South Korea. And there was, in fact, a basis, a commercial and economic basis for trading seasonal energy peaks or surpluses, excuse me, in, in uh, Russia and South Korea, on the one hand, and peak capacity surplus between Russia and their hydro system and South Korea and its system at different times of the year. So both capacity and seasonal energy trading made sense from a purely economic perspective if you could put a tie line through North Korea. Right. Well, if you're going to do that, you could just put the tie line from the two reactors and export the power to either Russia yeah. or South Korea. So does that mean then that, uh, as I understand it, so Cato knew from the beginning... Not from the beginning, but they figured it out pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, that these two light water reactors would never be able to, to serve all the, uh, the North Korean grid because of the way that the, uh, the grid was not working. And so most of the electricity produced at the light water reactors would end up being exported either to South Korea or South Korea and Russia. That's correct. And that, that would have made perfect economic sense, actually, because that's where the power could have been used productively. There's no point in having two gigawatt of power in North Korea and have no end use or factories that are commercially and economically uh, productive in using it. What are you going to do with that baseload power in North Korea if there are no factories? Industry had collapsed in North Korea. Uh, but it's completely the wrong way to, to deal with power shortages in North Korea. It's the exact opposite what should be done. Why is that? Well, you don't want to rebuild the grid until you know something about the future of urban industrial geography and therefore the distribution of end-use demand. And no one knows what that will look like until things change in North Korea fairly dramatically and drastically in terms of the economy. And, you know, there's a certain assumption that everything will just go to Nampo and to uh, Pyongyang and a few other industrial... Well, Wonsan and Hamhung. You can, you can make that assumption, but I don't think that that's a valid assumption. Once you build new transport infrastructure and you start thinking about where populations and markets might be located and what will actually happen, what it is actually happening, not, not will happen, this is actually happening right now, is bottom-up reconstruction, starting with an economic activity that turns out to be viable even under the incredibly stringent conditions for markets to operate in North Korea. Small businesses need power, so what do they do? They build a small power plant, they import a diesel generator, they import photovoltaics, they import 
bicycles, small trucks, and they get going. Now, but it, isn't it a problem, though, that the, um, the quickest and, uh, and, and cheapest way to produce energy in both North and South Korea, and, well, indeed in most of the world, is by burning hydrocarbons? I mean, you mentioned that uh, the, the bedrock of a lot of the uh, microgrids in North Korea is uh, diesel and gasoline generators, and in South Korea it's uh, coal-fired reactors. Uh, and in North Korea, as you point out, there's a lot of coal coming out of the ground too, which could run reactors as well. But what about going back to, to nuclear? I mean, in South Korea, unfortunately, they've, they've, they've backed away from it. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's no because basis for who's going to land North Korea, even if it's even if it's dismantling its nuclear weapons. No one's going to put up large amounts of capital to build nuclear reactors in North Korea, especially with the ancillary uh, when the necessary further investment is required is a stable grid to turn it on. It's like it's, it's actually rather it's ironic. It's rather similar to the original wind turbines the North Koreans imported, which were Vestas units, the Dutch units, which mm. they imported in 1988, which we could actually see from our site at Bunhari Village. And they have been desperately trying to make these things work on that unstable grid. For well, by then it was already ten years, and they failed. And the reason for that is you need stable grid power to actually make large wind turbines turn on, huh. or you need a hundred megawatt. Uh, you need a fairly large hundred kilowatt diesel generator, which they didn't have to generate the power to turn the units on. So you don't want to build systems where you don't have an operating grid that require the whole grid to be operating. That's why microgrids in a situation like North Korea make perfect sense. That's why people are doing it. Now, the question is, what do you do once change starts to accelerate with North Korea? You can't just hook it up to South Korea. South Korea's grid is already imbalanced. You've got all your power production down on the southeast coast with a few reactors uh, along uh, other parts of the coastline. All your demand is in Seoul. And you have very limited capacity to create extra transmission lines. So you're going to have a, a severely, you could sort of think of it as harmonically imbalanced, often near instability grid management problem. Mm. And in fact, South Korea has a real problem, which is the, the, they try to a cheap and dirty way to get the management software uh, from Europe. They rewrote it themselves here. And it didn't work. And so you're almost hand-dispatching power systems, the generators in South Korea, which is not how you should be running a modern power grid with a whole bunch of nuclear reactors on it. You can't then take a system like that and run power lines to North Korea and not expect your South Korean grid to do anything other than fall in a heap. Mm. It will fail. Okay, so that's electricity. What, what are the um, environmental or ecological issues uh, related to the Korean Peninsula that uh, that keep you busy? Well, the, the ones that I that, that I worry about most are the irony of having incredibly concentrated co-location of residences uh, of where people live in North Korea with industry in North Korea is that it actually left large chunks of the country relatively pristine. Not obviously those areas which are you know, involved in maize or rice production, mm. where every square inch has been obliterated and planted and, and is farmed, or up many of the mountain slopes that were you know, disastrously cultivated uh, during and after the famine, um, causing you know, erosion and runoff and siltation of the hydro dams. It was just 
a disastrous uh, strategy. But even with that set of problems you know, accumul- accumulating, there are still large chunks of North Korea that are relatively pristine from a biodiversity perspective. And what I would really like to see happen is North Koreans and South Koreans, in other words, Koreans, think through how that ecological base in North Korea could be reconnected with the residual remnant uh, biodiversity uh, habitat areas in South Korea to provide a sufficient basis for plants and animals to be self-sustaining for the long haul. This is a thousand-year vision. You know, really big decisions now in terms of where the big infrastructure projects are put, uh, what kinds of, for example, timber extraction policies are implemented or not in the future. At the moment, you can hear this vast sucking sound um, of timber you know, that was going to China. Well, all that has shut down because of the sanctions. The, the good side of that, it's very harsh for those who are involved in the industry in North Korea uh, because their livelihoods have gone, but it actually means that wholesale destruction of forests has actually slowed down just as the economic spiral and crash, downward spiral and crash after the end of the Cold War meant that North Korean greenhouse gas emissions suddenly became quite low mm. in relative sense. Now, there are some opportunities there, I think, for South Korea uh, with North Korea in the global climate change regime where you could take that uh, per capita differential in greenhouse gas emissions and by funding in, in, in keeping North Korea's greenhouse gas emissions low, um, you could actually create, claim a credit against South Korea's emissions, which would make some of the investments in North Korea self-financing. And this is actually not hypothetical. I mean, the North Koreans have actually been trying to get carbon credits from the UN uh, carbon credit system uh, posted. And, of course, that's now blocked by sanctions. But that, there's no reason that couldn't be reintroduced in the future. Is this something that would aid to or lead to uh, denuclearization or something after denuclearization? Or both. Uh, there are probably regional security frameworks that are needed to actually facilitate support or even make possible true denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, in particular a way of dealing with incremental dismantlement of nuclear facilities and disarming of nuclear weapons, all of which will probably take 10 years uh, to complete. Meanwhile, you need some kind of framework in which commitments are made and, uh, and monitoring and inspection is done before the North Koreans can go back to the NPT. They can't join the NPT system until they're completely disarmed. There's no way to do that under the NPT. One way is a nuclear weapons-free zone treaty. Mm. Yep. Uh, they would enter, even though they have nuclear weapons, they would make commitments, and then over time they would come into compliance, just as the Argentinians and Brazilians did in the Treaty of Tortoloco. That took 18 years in the case of Latin America. But it's much more than that. If you think about the conditions that are needed for such a thing to occur, it's really a comprehensive security zone is required with some form of concert between the great powers as to what are the security issues in the region as a whole, not just North Korea or the Korean Peninsula, but the whole region. Uh, What are the implications for those issues of the Korean Peninsula becoming denuclearized and for peace actually starting to break out in the Korean Peninsula? And the assumption there has to be that operational arms control and, and arms control measures actually become actual disarmament measures in the conventional military side of the Korean Peninsula. 
So peace really is starting to take root here. Which governments uh, do you feel are most likely to be listening to you? Or which governments are you engaging with in your ideas? Well, we're engaging with all the governments of the six-party talks. And we have our ways uh, over the years of doing that. A lot of it these days is not done publicly, but almost everything, not everything, but almost everything that we do is eventually published because we work in an unclassified realm deliberately. That means we can speak our mind, we can bite the hands that feed us, whether they're American or South Korean or whoever, uh, and we don't hesitate to do that. You know, what we do is authentic and worth at least reading before you dismiss it out of hand. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, we wrote a memorandum in some depth about the concept of a nuclear weapons-free zone. We then pulled out from the works of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il all the North Korean statements about a nuclear weapon-free zone being a viable and important concept going way back, appended those. We then had that document translated by a South Korean expert into Korean, and we then had a North Korean defector who we work with, uh, not defector, but someone who left North Korea many years ago, check the Korean to make sure it was not South Korean, no. Korean, and we then gave a copy of that to a North Korean who we know well to make sure that they know what a nuclear weapon-free zone is when we start talking about it. Now, when we started talking about it, people just dismissed it out of hand. It's no longer dismissed out of hand. You know, the UN Secretary General said this region needs to start looking at it. That didn't just happen. I can tell you there was lots of work behind the scenes. Um, various governments are now paying careful attention to that because the reality is you do need a legal treaty framework to deal with a number of these issues. You can't just deal with them bilaterally, but it won't be a cookie-cutter approach. It won't have anything to do with the South Pacific nuclear weapon-free zone, for example. You know, a lot of South Koreans immediately think, oh, this is a bunch of peaceniks running around. That's actually not how nuclear weapon-free zones work. They didn't come out of peaceniks. They came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis and nearly the ending of the human species. Right. Uh, and there's a reason the United States actually is part of a nuclear weapon-free zone. Not many people know this, but Puerto Rico and the American Virgin Islands are actually part of a nuclear weapon-free zone, the Latin American zone, and the United States cannot station nuclear weapons in Puerto huh. Rico or the Virgin Islands. This means that Guam could actually be part of a Northeast Asian nuclear weapon-free zone if that's what the North Koreans required and right. if we we're willing to do that kind of deal in return for what we really want from China and Russia. And there are advantages to us in doing that. We shouldn't just, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but we shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. There's a lot of hard thinking in front of us before we actually get to a final solution. Well, you certainly have many years of, uh, of work left ahead of you. <laughs> and I, I, want to, I want to thank you for your time uh, for this interview today. Sure, and I really urge uh, your listeners you know, go to our website. There's some very interesting stuff at the moment. Actually, not about Korea per se, although we'll shortly have a paper about North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons command and control and communication system. But we've got a bunch of work going on at the moment about the global issue of nuclear weapons command and control. And uh, there's also some podcasts there that people may 
find interesting. Fantastic. So go and have a look at nautilus.org. Indeed. And we'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks very much for joining us today. Okay. Thanks so much. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.